welcome back to Podcastles. You're listening to me, Georgia, with my sister, Nikita. Hey, everyone. We're currently looking at castles up in Northumberland. We're on part one because mm-hmm. there are many, many to get through. We've just been looking at the A's and B's this month. <laughs> and in a similar fashion, today's theme episode, as we come to the end of the month, is the Anglo-Scottish Wars. But again, we are looking at part one because a lot to get through, and we're going to come back to this in later seasons, aren't we, Nick? Yeah, we are, because there's there's just so much to get through for this. <laughs> we don't want to rush it, do we? Now, we're looking at the Scottish Wars of Independence, yeah, and specifically the first one, really, aren't we? But do you want yeah. to just give a little like overview to start us off? Yeah, so basically the Wars of Independence is the Scottish not wanting to be invaded and controlled by the English. Which I think is, you know, fair. Fair. <laughs> you know, what can you do? So as as context, because we're only going to be looking at, like you said, the, the first Scottish War of Independence. But the Anglo-Scottish Wars actually kind of last from the late 13th century, which is where we're going to pick it up, to, mm. to basically later in the 16th century. But those negative relationships extend further than that. So even when James VI of Scotland becomes James I of England after Elizabeth I's death in 1603, the relationship is still not fantastic. So oh, really, because I was going to say when you said end of 16th century, I was like, oh, well, obviously the reason why the uh, Scottish Wars of Independence end is because when Elizabeth dies towards the end of Elizabeth's reign, it's pretty clear that James is probably going to inherit and therefore that's uniting England and Scotland. But you're saying that there were issues after as well. I mean, it does technically unite them because he's king of both, but there are still some significant issues. When you've got cultural clashes that go back to the 1200s, that's not going to be solved by one monarch becoming the ruler of both. They've got very different ruling strategies, haven't they? And politics and Mm -hmm. different religions and all sorts, yeah. Yeah, you've got, you know, know, Scotland's Scotland's much more... Scotland's Presbyterian, right? Yeah, the Kirk is, is a very hard... Like, there's one very hard line of Protestantism and you've got very different approach to things in England but in general there's just a you know there's a there's a culture clash there are some issues because the relationship goes back such a long way Mm. but in this case we'll look at that Georgia and possibly part four of Northumberland (laughs) part 65 of Northumberland (laughs) it will we'll get there but for now we're going to be looking at the first Scottish War of Independence Right, so tell me about that. When does it start? So some more context. Okay. So Alexander III of Scotland, who's who's the ruler there at the time, dies in 1286 and doesn't really have an heir. When we say, well, he does have an heir, but her... Has he got a daughter? No. Oh. I can raise you one. He's got a granddaughter. Oh, wow, okay. So he's got a small child. Female child. Which, as we know, is just absolutely horrific. Who also happens to, to live in Norway. Right. Yeah, so she's Margaret... Margaret of Norway, from what we know of history, Georgia, that's quite problematic on several fronts. When the air isn't in the country, that can cause issues, particularly around here. We saw that a lot in the anarchy. It doesn't really matter if you're not the rightful heir. If you're in, if you're closer to the capital than the rightful heir, you're all good. You're more likely to get it. <laughs> so, so Scotland actually has a very different approach to the Matilda Stephen thing, which I assume is what you're referring to yeah. there. So in, in 1290, it's decided by the Guardians of Scotland, which is a group that come together and they basically elect from the nobles. Okay. Advisors and protectors. and Well, no, they are kind of sorting out the situation in Scotland in the meantime. I read right. a really interesting article about how the problem with this is that 
instead of just having a, a monarch who is particularly good at putting down noble issues. This mm. then allows a lot of the hev- like the heavyweight nobles to have conflicting clashes of of interest yeah. because of the because you know what they want is to further their own interests. So this causes quite right. you know, but in general, this is how they're then deciding things, and they decide that Margaret, who is going to be the queen. Mm. That's that is decided. She is the heir. She should marry Edward the first son of England to have a good relationship with England. Yeah, Edward the first okay. is the king of England at the time, but maintains Scottish independence. It's all going to be fantastic. Georgia. Unite the families. Okay, so problem solved. That's the end of the episode. All right. So what happens? Well, she dies on her way to Scotland. Ah. So there's again a power vacuum. That is so inconvenient. How selfish of her. <laughs> I know. Poor girl. She's so young, under the age of ten. Oh, bless her. So this is, you know, not going well. That's not great. So we've got a power vacuum. Yeah, so there's a power vacuum. The Guardians of Scotland are on it. I mean, that's such a great name, isn't it? I know, it's great. I love it. So the Guardians of Scotland, they get involved again and they they can't decide who is now the front runner for the... There's a lot of claimants to the throne. Right. So there's John Balliol is one of them, who we're going to hear about later. And then there's a member of the Bruce family. Ooh, I recognise that name. 1291, Edward comes up and he goes, I will help. However... You've got to recognise me as like the Lord Paramount of Scotland. Not one to pass up on some land because mm. Edward does become known as the Hammer of the Scots. Yes. He decides that this is a really good opportunity to get Scotland. So he he makes them recognise him as the Lord Paramount of Scotland. He gives them three weeks, actually, but the nobles end up giving in because I think a lot of them have certain interest in England anyway. They, there's not a lot they can do. Edward starts to hold meetings at Berwick to decide who should be the next ruler, mm. which is a bit the apprentice, I guess. <laughs> Ultimately, he decides on John Balliol. And John Balliol is made king of Scotland at the end of 1292, and he swears allegiance to Edward. So there is a king of Scotland, but they are... Mm. We've talked about this a little bit with the some of the castles of Northumberland, because I know that some of this stuff happened as you say, at like Barrett Castle and things like that. It's a complicated relationship. And then, so people in Scotland, obviously, like when we say people, we mainly mean the nobility, (laughs) uh, don't like how much John Balliol is bowing down to Edward I. Yeah. They don't like Edward's control. And so when Edward actually asks Balliol to, he, he says Balliol needs to raise an army to help him fight the French. The Scottish, the Scottish kind of make Balliol refuse. So Balliol says no. And actually in 1295, mm. Balliol and the Scots let the French know about uh, this impending attack and like everything that uh, Edward had said was <sighs> going to happen. And they actually sign a treaty with France. Is that the Old Alliance? Yeah, it becomes known as the Old Alliance. And it means that yes. France and Scotland pledge to protect each other against the English. Which isn't good because now you're in a sandwich and England is surrounded by people that are against them. Yeah, when I was looking up the Old Alliance, because the Old Alliance has cropped up quite a lot in everything I've studied. I don't know about you, Georgia. Yeah, it goes a lot through like the Tudor history and stuff as well. Yeah, so it, it kind of fades apparently towards the end of the late 1500s because Scotland, like you said, becomes very Protestant. Obviously, France does not. But apparently... Up until the early 1900s, people in Scotland could actually get French citizenship as a result of the alliance. Really? Which I didn't know, and I thought that was pretty cool. Were the people actually doing that, or is that one of those laws that people forget to update them? Like, 
some of the rules you find across America and across England as well with just like I have no idea. laws that were just never updated, which technically means someone could still be like hung for treason and things like that. I didn't know that, but yeah, it's... Um... I don't know if that's a specific example, but there are some really odd ones that I've seen that like you find and you're like, obviously no one would do that now. But technically it's still in the laws. But yeah, so th- that's the old alliance and Edward uh, doesn't like this. So he starts to put more troops on the Anglo-Scottish border and because, well... As you would, getting a bit apprehensive. You would. So then get the Battle of Dunbar. So in 1296, which is really where the wars really begin, Edward sieges Berwick and then invades Mm. Scotland and we have the Battle of Dunbar, which, to shortly summarise, Balliol loses, he cedes to Edward and Edward's like, right, that kingship is coming back. You're not having that anymore. Okay, you're not king anymore. Apparently about 100 Scottish knights were captured. And at the same time, just to really, you know, put the cherry on the top for the English, Edward nicks the Stone of Destiny from the, from Schoon and brings it to England. And the stone, of, so the stone of Destiny has a lot of significance in Scotland because it was actually part of the coronation ritual. Kings were crowned on it. It was actually in Westminster Abbey for a really long time. And then some um, Scottish students took it back. And that's a whole story, and it's actually really interesting. So then Edward forces 2,000 or so nobles to swear fealty to him at Berwick again. This is really helping all the history that we talked about in the Berwick Castle yeah, exactly. come together. Everything's making so much more sense. <laughs> Obviously, not everybody does swear the fealty. Right. Because otherwise that would be the end of the episode, and that would be particularly short, even for us. Yeah. So that's when we have to bring in a man called William Wallace. Another name I recognise. You might know William Wallace from Braveheart. Probably not particularly accurate. So (laughs) I don't think it's one of those things you watch for research. No, but still. William Wallace was a a Scottish knight Mm. who was like, absolutely not, this is enough. It's time for the English to get out. Oh, so he wasn't even like proper nobility. He had no claim to the throne. No, he has no claim to the throne. Right. He actually he actually gets made, he has a couple of really big battles and after the Battle of Stirling Bridge, which we'll come on to in a second, which is in 1297, he becomes one of the guardians of Scotland. Right. So he's gaining respect quickly. He's he's not in line for the throne in any way. He, he just runs this rebellion and that brings us to the Battle of Stirling Bridge in 1297. So... Despite the fact that the English have a bigger army by a long way, Wallace and his friend, Andrew Murray... Sorry. Sorry, Andrew Murray. Andy Murray. Yes. Okay. So, tennis legend, who is also Scottish, Andy Murray, just gets involved a little bit. I think he's probably not going to want us to claim that he was involved in that. I mean, it was a victory for the Scottish. Oh, spoiler. Okay, tell us about it then. Um, So, they basically position themselves uh, the other side of a narrow bridge... Oh, I've heard of this. And so even though the English has a huge army, they can only get through a bit at a time because there's a bottleneck with the with the bridge. And then the uh, Scottish also stand there quite tightly packed so that the English and the cavalry, like the cavalry and the foot soldiers and et cetera, can't get close to the, like, the army. Then there's no escape. They can't go off the sides of the bridge. So it, it becomes like a massive defeat for the, uh, for the Scottish against the English. And then Andrew Murray dies in this battle, which means I can't make any tennis jokes for the rest of it. But so then we, well, then we move on, Georgia, to the, to the next big battle, which is the Battle of Falkirk in 12... 12- 98. Okay. And unfortunately, this does not go as well for the Scottish. Okay. If there's one thing we do know about Edward I, aka the Hammer of the Scots, is he doesn't like to lose. No, and he's also 
got quite a lot of power behind him. Falkirk actually isn't far from Stirling. So it's, I think it's, from what I looked at Google Maps, I think it's like a, almost a five hour walk. That's pretty you. Wouldn't, you'd do that, wouldn't you? I would do that. I love a good walk. I like a good two hour walk. I've maybe pushed a three. I'm not sure I'd do a five hour walk. Oh, I love them. I think they're great. Also, would it take longer when you don't have Google Maps because it's the 13th century and they just have to rely off of like their own intuition? Can probably go straight through though. <laughs> I think uh, this is down like the the roads that are there now. Also, they'd have quite a lot of stuff to carry. Yes, armies don't tend to just be going for a stroll with maybe some water on their back. They tend to have other things they need, like weapons. Anyway, what are we looking at for numbers? Like, how is this faring up? So Wallace has about 6,000 men. Okay. And Edward has 15,000. Right. So more than double. Yeah. Do they have another funnel bridge to help them? No, there's no bridge to funnel the English through. And so Edward decides to bring out the big guns. Uh, Well, we say big guns. They were the longbowmen. Okay. Which is, I guess, the equivalent of a big gun. Um, Basically, because they can't get through the the like the compacted people uh soldiers with the spears on horseback or with like on with foot soldiers yeah they're just firing into them to break them up and pretty brutal yeah so it's it's a really big defeat and wallace actually leaves the guardianship and he goes into hiding so it's kind of the end of wallace in the context of like the main chain of events for the first anglo-scottish okay. war uh, he is cap he is captured He's captured uh, near Glasgow and he ends up being tried for treason and hanged, drawn and quartered. By the Scottish or by the English? By the English. After that, Mm. what comes next is post-Falkirk defeat, two new guardians of Scotland are named, Robert Bruce and John Comyn. Robert Bruce. It's actually, I read an article whilst researching for this, which I hadn't heard of before. And apparently, apparently there's a possibility that Edward had, uh, Robert had submitted to Edward on some level after the rebellion because he was on Wallace's side. He was rebelling. Pretty inconclusive, but I thought that was interesting. Mm. I will link to that article in the show notes so you can make your own decision. So does Bruce have any claim to the throne or is it a bit like Wallace? Yeah, Bruce is not the same Bruce as the one who was in the running with Balliol for the throne. Right. But he is of that family. So Right. So still a claim. Yeah, and John Comyn also has a claim. Okay. So they're they're rivals and in 1306, which I'm aware we're jumping forward a few years. Only a couple. Bruce and Comyn meet at uh, Greyfriars Monastery mm. as a discussion. They're like what are we going to do about the English? And apparently what they're going to do about the English is Bruce is going to kill Comyn. Right. And not long after that he becomes crowned of the King of Scotland and the Pope actually excommunicates him for, you know, killing Comyn. But wow. there's not a lot. I think a fight broke out. I don't know if we've got a lot. I, I couldn't find a lot of information about what had gone down. But Robert Bruce kills Just John kills Comyn. the other claimant to the throne. And now he's king. That is one way to deal with the issue, isn't it? I guess. It's not one I'd con- condone, but <laughs> there we go. After that, there's a lot of toing and froing as Bruce goes around trying to take back the Scottish castles that the English are still holding. In particular, he defeated and destroyed Roxburgh, Edinburgh and Stirling. Edinburgh? Yeah, because the English were holding them. He slights Edinburgh Castle. I didn't know that. Yeah, in 1314, nice. he takes all three back. And so there was a really interesting article that I was reading on Bruce's use of castles and his use of them in battle and the way he would slight castles in order to to really control land mm. and so there are you know there are some that he he garrisons there are some that he destroys there are some that he just kind of leaves and just keeps attacking to put pressure on the english so to get rid of the 
English held castles between 1311 and 1314. He feels like he has to destroy them. Is, is what this article was saying, presumably because they're of military stature. Mm. Because the Engl- it's been such a power structure for England, he's like, we're going to have to get rid of them. Yeah. Um, but more on that later, as more context, because I thought this was really interesting, George, and I think we brought it up in the Bamborough episode. From 1311, because Bruce is starting to have a stronger position in Scotland, he starts to look at the north of England. And mm. when I said a moment ago that he puts pressure on some castles by not taking them but continuously attacking them a lot of the northumberland castles are in that bracket right there's actually throughout this period until at least this was looking at until the end of the first anglo-scottish war especially once it's no longer edward the first it's edward the second which is a changeover we're going to talk about in a moment edward the second isn't a very effective ruler but bruce is mm. and so robert the bruce ends up attacking northumberland castles so much that a lot of them have truces with scotland and have to enter into local truces in order to stop them from attacking so they carry off their sheep the cattle they you know raise things and he would actually bruce attacked a really wide area of the north of england and he'd do it for days or weeks instead of just months particularly places like berwick right and this was so that he could take away like the easy stuff to the low-hanging fruit. <laughs> it's an interesting tactic, yeah. Well, it's also, I think the article that I was reading was saying that it was like a steady income. Mm. And it's a really good way of... And that explains the um, Peel Towers and the fact that, you know, whereas in other parts of the country, you know, it's just major nobility that have proper castles, most just have manors. All the barons, anyone who's anyone, has proper defences and some form of, like, way to hide because clearly these raids are frequent. Yeah, and putting it, bringing it back to the other article that I was reading about his strategies with castles these are the ones where he doesn't take them but the political because he sees them as political rather than military right in their importance and so the pressure and the fear for the north of england is enough for him so he's really really strategic when it comes to castles which i mm, thought that's so interesting. very relevant to us but from these strategies into northern england this is when in april 1322 bamborough lands couldn't collect any rent and even by 28 they were only about two thirds. Yes. So Bruce is doing well. And now we're going to go slightly back again. And we're going to look at 1315. Okay. The Battle of Bannockburn. In the meantime, you've got a pretty bad defeat for Bruce at Methaven in 1306. You've also got a success at Loudon Hill in 1307. But last, we have to kind of come to the Battle of Bannockburn. Does it go well or badly for Bruce? Well, let me tell you. Okay. Don't spoil the fun. Sorry. So in 1315, Edward's actually died. So right. Edward I is no longer around. Edward II becomes king of England in 1307. Um, which is interestingly when a lot of the Scottish successes really start to kick in. Edward II then becomes king in 1307. Okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb, Georgia. And I know I've already mentioned this a little bit, but uh, Edward II's not as good. Yeah. I mean, people talk about Edward I and Edward III quite a bit. When you talk about like a watered-down version of something, it's like the tea bag's not even been put in the cup. <laughs> I mean, he um, he gets replaced, doesn't he? There's a coup in the end. That's how bad Edward II is seen. He's deposed by his own wife. But his son is put on the throne. His son is put on the throne and his son's a kid, so... They'd rather a kid than Edward II. I think it might be that they'd rather the power they can control over the child. True, yes. Anyway, that's for another time. That's something I think we'll probably hear of later in the seasons. Anyway, Bruce has done a great job okay. taking back the remaining castles. As context, in 1314, it's actually only Stirling and Berwick that 
the English still have. Okay. When we come to Bannockburn, Bruce is using the similar tight formations that Wallace used at Stirling. He actually, because of the longbowmen, he hides the army in the woods so that they right. can't attack. And then they hold off until the English were in a great position, not for the English, obviously, for the Scottish. Mm. And then they come charging out. Right. So they learn from the time before. <laughs> and so basically what had happened is Edward II had taken his army across a, a stream. They ended up on the wrong side of a very steep bank. So it was hard for them to get away. And so actually thousands of English died. Oh no. Okay. So this was actually one of the most significant battles. So yeah. Bruce, Bruce did really well. Bruce doing well. Scottish are really like getting themselves back to where they want to be. So then we're going to fast forward a few years and we're going to look at the Declaration of Arbroath. Okay, when was that? The Declaration of Arbroath, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, was the Declaration of Independence that the Scottish sent to Pope John XXII. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty significant document in terms of stating their claim in their own right. Mm. Apparently, it's partially the basis for the US Declaration of Independence. Oh, interesting. If any of our American listeners know, it would be great to find out more about that because I think that's that's really interesting. Yeah. And eventually the Pope recognises Bruce as King of the Scots. Okay. Presumably de-excommunicated. <laughs> yeah, he excommunicated him originally. Okay. So then, you know, he's there's more autonomy there. And then you get to 1327, which is the Battle of Stanhope Park. So in context, the seven years in between, you've got, as I mentioned earlier, Bruce is harrying the north of England. Mm. He's got this great tactic going. The English nobles in Northumberland are actually having truces with Scotland so they don't have to be attacked. And Edward III by this point, because Edward II has been deposed, has decided that enough is enough. I say Edward, he is a child. So his advisors, his advisors, particularly the name that came up quite a lot in this was Roger Mortimer, Mm. who I think leads the attack or is at least on on the mission with Edward and the English lose. Okay, it's a pretty interesting turn of events. You've you've got, you know, pretty decisive. This is still Robert the Bruce. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in 1328, you get the Treaty of Edinburgh, Northampton. So that is then the end of the First War of Independence. It gets signed by Robert in Edinburgh. And then it gets ratified in Northampton, hence Edinburgh Northampton. Yeah. They basically, they recognise Robert the Bruce as the rightful king. They recognise Scotland as a country in its own right. It's independent of England now. And it's, they bring the border back because obviously there's been a lot of chewing and throwing. So they basically reinstate whatever was there when Alexander III was king. Yeah, because the borders have been varying a lot, right? Yes. And then Robert's son, David marries Edward III's sister. Ah, which is often how treaties are sealed, actually, with a marriage. And that really concludes where we've got to in the first Scottish War of Interesting. Independence. That makes a lot of the stuff that we've looked at, that puts it a lot into context, because obviously we've been talking about some of these Northumberland castles and some of what happened to them without much understanding necessarily of mm. the wars that were going on. So that's a really great start. I think next time we return to Northumberland, you know, because so far we've only done the A's and B's, there are more of them. Uh, when we next return to it, we will obviously return to Anglo-Scottish relations yeah, because a lot more to cover, but what a great start. Yeah, it's fascinating. Do you have a favourite battle? I mean, I like the one with the the bottleneck. That's clever. And also I've heard of it before, yeah. The, the Battle of Stirling Bridge? Yes, I um, I think that's clever. And I think, you know where I think I've heard about that? I think I've heard about it from Horrible Histories. Oh, Horrible Histories is is the best. <laughs> I love it. Well, that brings us, Nick, to the end of 
part one of Northumberland. Next month, we're going to be moving on to Essex, which is the home county. home turf. Fingers crossed we can do it justice. If you enjoyed this episode, if you enjoyed learning about some of Northumberland this month, please do get in touch. Email us, podcastlespodcast at gmail.com. You can also tweet us, Instagram us, Facebook us, whatever you like. Just look for us as podcastles on social media. And of course, it massively helps us out if you can give us a little subscribe and a rate and a review. If you want to know more about these topics, then as Nick mentioned, the show notes will have all of the sources and references in so you can go and read read up a bit more if you want. And yeah, get in touch. Let us know what you thought and we will see you next week as we kick off Essex with Colchester Castle. Do I hear about Boudicca coming? (laughs) Maybe, maybe. No spoilers. See you next week, Georgia. See you next week. Bye. Bye.